Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. My name is Nia, as you all know by now. And I'm Ebony. Welcome back. This episode is all about relationships. So whether you're dating, you're going through a transitional period, or you're looking to find new skills for your relationship, no matter what type of relationship that is, we have our expert, Ebony Gadsden, who is going to be here with us, who's always here with us, thank God. Our in-house sex therapist. (laughs) Yes, in-house relationship sex therapist. So I first wanted to ask Ebony, like I do every week, how How's your week going up or your weekend? Yeah, right. It's going okay. I think the fact that we're working a little bit overtime is very telling. Yes. Time management has been interesting, but that's kind of how we wrap up winter, right? Honestly, I feel like as the days get longer, I'm running out of time. As like it's just <laughs> It's so crazy. It's like, it, it should feel better because obviously we're getting more sunlight, which thank God, because that whole getting dark at three o'clock thing was not terrible. Cute. Yeah. Not fun mm-hmm. for my mental health or any, any of the above. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy that we're having more sun, but I'm also feeling like crunch time. Like everything is going into overdrive. School's gone into overdrive. I'm going to be going to my first like conference there to do in-person ultrasound. So I'm super, super excited about that. And to meet my like really awesome, fun class. I have like a really, really fun class. Uh, so I'm excited to meet everybody and like just pick everybody's brains. They're all super, super smart. Most of them are working in the ER. So going to be fun. It's a season of learning. Yes. I'm always in a season of learning though. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never going to be the provider who's like, oh, I know this. Like all of it, every little detail. You got to stay immersed in it. Yeah. My practice is doing a whole IFS training starting in April. And it's like, you have to stay in the latest interventions or else you're like, you don't keep your passion for it. People are always saying, I'm always hearing in medicine, it's a practice. You practice medicine, you never know medicine because it's constantly something, like you said, that's changing. There's constantly new innovations. By the time a textbook is printed, all that information has been researched in maybe a different way or a new way or in a more peer-reviewed way. There's more data. So it's always good to be immersed in a conference and just like be around like-minded people who are pushing the envelope and want to know more. Anyway, Eb, we came up with a really good fun fact for you guys. This is a psychology fact. So we're super excited. And I think this one's so, so cool because it's about a couple. Yeah, working together. Yeah, yeah. Our episode today is about relationships. So go ahead, Ab. Tell us about our fabulous couple. Black power couple, Mamie Phipps Clark and Kenneth Clark, or shall I say doctors, Mamie Phipps Clark and Dr. Kenneth Clark. You know them. They are known for the Brown versus Board of Education. Um, 1954, they had the study that talked about the dolls, that referenced the dolls that how children responded to the dolls, what their cultural bias was that was so deep and important to that study to really show folks like this is the impact that this has. Segregation, yep, and racism and bias has on on young kids who are growing up in our school system. Yeah, kids are always going to tell you the truth. And so you put a black doll in front of a child versus a white doll and they tell you which one is better. And I mean... That study was criticized as being a small study in the sample size. 
But I mean, sometimes the truth, what people are thinking is the truth. And I think that was just an incredible study that went on to basically change the landscape of desegregating schools in the United States. Right. So Ebony, tell me about Mimi, because I I honestly have never heard about her. It's a little bit of tea there, right? Because we know how the women's movement was at the time that this all went down. So Brown versus Board, 1954, women really had to earn, or, or I shouldn't say earn, but like, right, we didn't get our credit for a lot of the things that we contributed to any field at that time. So unfortunately, the collaborative nature of what Mimi and her husband Kenneth did together was not fully acknowledged at that time. So he basically got all of the recognition. Sure, sure. Which, which you know, is half his half deserved on him. But his wife was in a cr- crucial part of the, that study and the research. He brought a lot of experience to the table that really drove a lot of the ideas about how to design that study. You know, she worked in an all-Black nursery. She, like, she did her thesis on the development of consciousness of self in Negro preschool children. So let's give her her credit. Let's give her her flowers. Snaps to her. Snaps to her. And I also wanted to go on and say, I, I did not know this about this couple, but actually they went on to develop the Harlem Youth Opportunities Unlimited Center, which was in Harlem, New York City, where they basically studied and gave resources out to the African-American community about children and child development, which I'm sure in Harlem, although it was my majority Black community, they didn't probably have a lot of those resources and researchers. So honestly, them as a couple, as a, that's a true power couple. That's the real deal. They're change makers. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to them. Their study, the doll experiments were very, very essential in desegregation of schools. So yeah, that's our fun fact today. So I have some cool stuff to do. I have to introduce our our most beloved Ebony Gadsden. Oh, thank you. I'm going to read out her bio because why not? I know that it's on our website. It's also all over every time you come to the to the app to listen to the podcast. But we're going to really do a deep dive into Ebony and, and all of her accomplishments because I think that's something we should highlight. So Ebony Adson strives to facilitate a judgment-free zone where people can feel free to be their authentic selves in individual and group therapy settings. She began her journey in mental health by studying psychology at St. John's University, where she also ran her own cross-cultural correlational study about marriage perspectives in the millennial population. So what what an amazing resource we have today to talk about marriage. Someone who did this when she was literally in college, you know, bachelor's level, doing marriage perspectives in the millennial population. She then studied social work at the University of South California, and it was there that she honed her skills in evidence-based practices. Ebony currently sees clients at the Princeton Center for Mind-Body Healing, where the connection between emotions and sense-state experience is highly valued. Ebony incorporates a variety of treatment interventions to meet the needs of the diverse population she serves. She's passionate about her work, which has led her to discussions at various organizations centered around topics like sexuality, trauma, healthy relationships, and how practitioners like myself can provide more informing care. Attendees of Ebony's workshops not only learn new information, but they they comment on the interactive aspects of the learning experience. 
I have yet to be invited to one of Ebony's um, <laughs> workshops, uh, and training. workshops and trainings, but I honestly, I've been a lifelong learner. From, I've learned so much from her. We have one-on-one trainings. We have one-on-one <laughs> high-intensity trainings, which I do learn a lot from. And it has, like I said in previous episodes, it's helped me become more affirming as a provider. Aw, thanks, babe. Of course, honey. So with that, we're going to get started. We're, if this is kind of a Valentine's Day relationship-themed yeah. kind of episode. Mm-hmm. We're really excited to get that started. So let's get started with our first questions. Sure. I wanted to start off by talking to Eb about what kind of couples come to see her. And also, when should people really start thinking about couples therapy? Is it in the beginning of your relationship when you're going through a transitional period like marriage and kind of what her overall experience is, what her intake is like? So I'm just going to pick her brain today, basically. I'm going to let you take it away. I love this question, especially post-Valentine's Day. I love seeing couples as some of my favorite work because the session takes itself. Like you don't have to do too much work as a clinician, but at the same time, it feels so meaningful because you're literally building intimacy with two people. I get all sorts of couples. There are some couples that are really going through some rough patches. There are some couples that need discernment therapy, which is deciding whether or not to continue their relationship. There are some couples that are dealing with some life events that are starting to affect their intimacy. And I do mean intimacy in all the senses. So whether it's just trying to find time for each other after having a baby, after having a newborn, or actual sexual intimacy, right? Not being able to connect with each other in that way due to physiological reasons, whether it's like erectile dysfunction or vulvodynia. We're definitely working to change some of that language around so that it's more affirming and less stigmatizing. Right. And less clinical. Right. And less negative framed because clearly there's some other things going on and it's not a dysfunction per se, but there's a reason why your body is functioning that way. But I also have some couples that are really grounded with each other, super connected, great communication skills, but they're really just looking to maybe kick it up a notch, you know, as a sex therapist, I'm well-versed in polyamory, kink lifestyle and different things. And so sometimes when they want to navigate something new in their partnership, they'll come to a therapist just to make sure that boundaries are in place, that they're respecting each other's wishes and not re-traumatizing in case there are some previous experiences that maybe some of that would show up for. And do you get all age groups? Do you find that? Because our generation, I just feel like this is a flat out. It's just more acceptable. It's almost encouraged. It's almost like I would even say trendy to be in therapy. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you have a lot more younger couples or do you get people from all over, all lifespans come to you? I definitely get all over, but I think specifically for me, I'm getting a lot of millennial couples. And I think it's because I'm a millennial. People tend to want a provider that they can resonate with and that understands them. So I'm seeing a lot of them, but I've seen couples that are older, that are middle-aged. I've seen couples that are quote-unquote geriatric. I don't love that (laughs) phrase. I don't love that phrase either. But medically, yeah, right? And so that has a lot that comes with it. Like I saw a couple, very interesting case where one partner had gone through a cancer diagnosis and thankfully came out on the other side, went into remission, but that definitely shook their relationship up a bit. And they had adult children that were really trying to cope with it. And they just really had some different viewpoints and they wanted to connect with someone 
who was fairly neutral ground just to be able to hold space for all the different emotions. And that was really meaningful work. And I actually love what you just said, because like that is actually my favorite part about a therapist or going to therapy is that neutral ground. And I always encourage even family therapy when I see my pediatric patients and their parents, and there's some emotional behaviors that are starting to display in school or during transitional periods or during a parent splitting. And I always encourage family therapy because I think that sometimes, especially kids or even in any dynamic, any relationship that you have, any interpersonal relationship, I feel like it's always beneficial to have a mediator, to have that person who has no side and is just facilitating a conversation. There's always power dynamics in couples, even if it's not necessarily a negative one and you can kind of speak to this. And I think that therapists help everybody be on the same speaking page, you know, which I think is just so beneficial, especially when you're in a traditional like man-woman relationship. And even I'm sure in same-sex relationships, there can be power dynamics. And I just think that it's always nice to have someone who is just neutral and who can just talk you guys through whatever it is you're going through. I wanted to ask you about therapy before marriage or therapy before like transitional periods. And you had kind of like spoken about that a little bit and why you think that I did some marriage therapy before me and Charles, my husband got married. I think that it's really important. I wanted you to kind of speak to that. I know it's really traditional and like Christian. Yeah, they have actually the Catholicism. They do a whole retreat. Yeah. Even just having a baby, like you said any transitional period and why you think couples tend to like come to you for that support? Well, I think as a therapist, you're well-versed in helping people manage their expectations. So even if you don't particularly know what's at stake, you can ask those thought-provoking questions to help them get a better, a realistic edge on what's to come. So, okay, I wonder what your best case scenario is what the worst case scenario is, what do you need versus what you want and kind of just sitting with all of those moving parts so that way we can just with an air of curiosity be like, okay, so this is what we all kind of expect. And then in a way, using that function of anxiety to your advantage and not letting it hinder you. So really anxiety, it's the psyche's attempt to come up with a plan. And so we just don't always do that in a healthy way. Sometimes it's quite maladaptive, but if we can do it in a safe space with a trained professional, then we're able to really think through, considering all the things we want and need, what the plan is. So when you do something like go to couples therapy before any kind of life transition, whether it's getting more committed, like a step towards marriage or domestic partnership or adopting a child, having a child, any of those things, it allows you to really make certain of the choices that you're making, get in touch with your own agency, Mm -hmm. also get in touch with your partner and making sure that you're collaboratively making those decisions, that you're hearing each other, you're managing the expectations of each other. And that it's like, okay, we're making this decision, but you want to have a kid for the reason I want to have a kid, right? Or it's okay with us that we have different reasons for going into this just really that communication piece. Yeah, I think that's really what I found amazing about therapy. Now, when you go to therapy by yourself, it's an enlightening experience to begin with, to get in touch with yourself, to get in touch, improve and understand yourself better. Because the relationship that you have with yourself is, I believe, the most important relationship that you'll ever have and the longest relationship you'll ever have. The longest, right? So you might as well just (laughs) explore that. 
get comfortable with them because that person is sticking around. Sticking around, exactly. (laughs) But it becomes even more nuanced. That's why I just really admire what you do for a line of work because when you bring in another person now, it is very different. Even if you feel so connected to this person, you meet them, you feel so connected, you feel like this is your kindred spirit, they're still an entirely different person with an entirely different set of maybe opinions or goals or life plan or expectations and that honing, that safe space to talk about the real important questions. I think therapists ask the best questions and I think therapists are always asking questions that like when I was in therapy, me and Charles would look at each other and be like, we never thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) The best part about the question was hearing my partner's answer. It's like 21 questions with the person you love, but they're really insightful questions that allow you to see your partner in a different way. And I just think that's why it's just like amazing what you do for a living and how many couples you have helped advance in their relationship or end their relationship. I wanted to go into that a little bit, like discernment therapy. Like what is that? And is the goal of couples therapy always to be a better couple? Definitely not. So I definitely do want to talk about discernment therapy because I don't think a lot of people know about it. And I've had at least three couples that have ended their relationship after a series of sessions with me and have felt really good about it. One couple that they were like, you know, we were able to stay friends because we went through this discernment therapy process together. I felt some clinical guilt about it because I think on the clinical side, sometimes it feels like success looks like the relationship thriving. It looks like you set treatment goals. And sometimes the treatment goals are not discernment therapy in the beginning. Sometimes the treatment goals are to improve communication. Reconcile. Right. And so then sometimes halfway through, you have to pivot and change those treatment goals when feelings change, when different events happen that create more disconnect within the partnership. But, you know, I had some great feedback from people saying like, you know, we felt really held in this process and breaking up was not another trauma. It wasn't something that completely tainted our next relationship experience because we were able to go through this tenderly and with compassion for each other and for ourselves. Yeah, because breakups can be horrible. They are. Everyone has gone through some kind of breakup where you kind of do the like dancing where you go back and forth and you're not really sure or you're in that gray space. And it just kind of was none of that. It was just really thoughtfully thinking through each step intentionally, kind of weaning off of each other and diversifying support networks because these were the kind of couples that were like together since high school. Their families were enmeshed in each other. So there was a lot to lose essentially. And that's what's hard about a breakup. It's a loss. It's a grief experience. Exactly. So the discernment therapy is like pre-coping for grief. And then you end up not having to grieve in a way I won't say that you don't have to grieve at all, but the grieving is much less because you've held space for yourself before the event, before the breaking up. And you've also had time to process it because I'm sure you're asking questions in therapy with the individual person, not just the couple. Like, okay, I wanted to talk about that because I think you have such a unique way of seeing your patients and like doing intakes with your patients. And I love that my therapist did this too, but like having a session individually with each person. yeah. And like why you might do that. And I think that's like an amazing way of starting therapy. And do you sometimes take breaks where like, okay, we've had a couple sessions 
together. And now I think we need to separate again and maybe do individual sessions for a little while and then go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely do, especially as a trauma clinician. When you notice that there are things that show up in the partnership that are clearly from a previous experience or some kind of upbringing, conditioning that really is kind of focused on one part of the partnership, that person kind of deserves some specialized attention. So not to like single anyone out, but just to give that the space that it deserves to allow that to take up space and to really heal some of those wounds. I will sometimes pivot back to individuals, but just to kind of give an overview of what my intake looks like, I'll start the first session with the couple. My first question that I usually love to ask people is what their favorite things are about each other, just to kind of set the tone for like, we're here because there's some love. We're here for a positive reason at the end of the day, even should the outcome be that we choose to end the partnership. I like to start like that and then eventually get our feet wet into what the treatment goals actually are, what attracted you to each other, why are we here, blah, blah, blah. Then I like to do at least two, sometimes it's three or four sessions individually with each partner. So like if it's a couple, that may be six sessions or so. If it's a polyamorous situation, then I want to do some individuals with each partner. Because I think it's important to see each person as a holistic individual, get to know their background. Who do you call family? Who gets to be your friend? How did you come to realize yourself as a sexual being, for example? And then how does all that show up in the relationship? Because if I don't have that understanding of just who you are by yourself as an individual, I'm only ever seeing you through the lens of the couple. And I think that's kind of disrespectful to like your core self. Yeah. And I also think it's a very distorted lens. How can you see the full picture if you're not taking into account the full parts? Yeah. A little bit of gestalt therapy there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. How do you find the right therapist, couples therapists, especially, or sex therapists? Because that's a sensitive subject for most people. Most people don't want to start all over in sex therapy because they've shared some things that are really intimate. Even I know clinicians who have a hard time talking about sex Mm -hmm. and really getting into the nitty gritty of a sexual history because it is uncomfortable. I don't know why, because in this society in the United States that we live in, sex is so highly profitable and everywhere. But when it comes to asking the real questions to keep people healthy, for some reason, people are really afraid to do it. Or they feel that maybe the person is going to be shy or alarmed by them asking these questions. But I wanted to know how to find the right therapist for you. How do you know? We've all heard those couples who say, I just felt like this therapist was one-sided or I felt like they were like siding with this person more. Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't want to do therapy anymore. So go about how people should maybe navigate looking for a therapist. I think you should definitely start with some kind of search engine that gives you a lot of results. I do recommend psychology today just because there's not just psychologists on there. There are social workers, there are LPCs, there's LMFTs, licensed marriage and family therapists on there. There's all kinds of letters, okay? (laughs) And you can toggle your advanced search options to clinicians of color, clinicians that specialize in gender diverse clients, clinicians that specialize in people that have adopted children. There's just so many niche areas of specialty. Yeah. And I think it's important in your phone consultation call that you do that together, because I think that's where some of that 
alignment or misalignment rather comes in where you go into a session and then you're feeling like the therapist is more aligned with your partner than you. And a lot of times it's because, yeah, there's already been kind of a rapport built. Your partner made the call. Your partner kind of told the therapist all this background information. And now you're coming in as kind of like secondary information. And ideally, that shouldn't be that much of a problem. But I think if we want everything to start on equal footing, then that's a great way. Usually when I get reached out to by one partner, my response is, let's find a time to connect all of us together (laughs) so that I can hear your treatment goals and answer any questions either of you may have. Right. Just to create that power dynamic. And then I think it's really important to be able to advocate for yourself in a therapy room. So let's say you feel like you're not being heard in a session, which I'm not saying whatever happened with you, Ebony, but I'm saying, how do you then tell your therapist or tell your partner, I don't think this person is working out, or maybe I need to have an individual session with this therapist so that they maybe understand my backstory a little bit more and maybe why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. How would you go about doing that as a client? Well, I think it's hard when the therapist isn't creating that safe space. And that's kind of a red flag for you to maybe exit stage left and look for another clinician. I don't want to sugarcoat that. That's really like not a good feeling going into a therapeutic setting. But if you feel like this person is really a good fit, like say they're trained in like EMDR or something, which is really rare and hard to find. And maybe they're also a clinician of color and they accept your insurance. Okay. Yeah. You're trying (laughs) to make this work. Yeah, exactly. And that's fair. So then the way you would navigate that with them is maybe just in a way that feels safe to you. I encourage a lot of people to send me an email after session. If there's anything that comes up for you in between our time and my email is HIPAA compliant. So that's why I'm able to kind of navigate that option. And people feel safer to write things than they do to like say it face to face or even virtually in the virtual office, that can be intimidating to just see someone's facial reaction. But I think there's a lot of different ways you can navigate it. But just remembering that you are paying. The power (laughs) dynamic is such that, yeah, this person's providing you a service. So as healers, we are serving you. We are providing something to you. So I think it's important for people to just remember that you can fire anyone. And if you can hold on to that, then I think that will allow you to, if someone was your assistant, I don't want to create that like ugly hierarchy for us because we did work hard to get where we are, but just for clients, just for patients, if someone was your assistant, you have no issue telling them how you felt about the quality of the work they were doing. Mm -hmm. So why is it so different for people that are in charge of your health? Like that's a very serious thing. You need to kind of empower yourself to be able to speak up. And if you really feel you can't, that's really a dangerous thing. It's not a good fit. It's not a good situation. And you can always ghost. (laughs) You can ghost. You can definitely ghost your therapist. Pay your last bill and then just ghost. Yeah, please pay your last bill and then (laughs) ghost. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to also talk to you a little bit briefly about overcoming conflict and communication styles. But we might have to invite you back. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole topic. I wanted to just get into a little bit about the nitty gritty couples arguing in therapy and how do they not bring that back into the relationship? Or is that a healthy part of therapy? You just arguing about some of the things that were said and then bringing it back to the next session. How do you kind of tell your patients to handle some of the more red hot topics that maybe you would discuss? 
I'm a very tangible therapist. That's you usually are. how I like to describe myself. Which is why you're so busy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is why you don't get a break. I think that sometimes it has advantages and disadvantages and that I give people skills of how to argue. What does a healthy conflict look like versus, you know how there's like clean pain versus dirty pain? It's kind of like that when it comes to arguing. Are we arguing about the grievance at hand about the disconnect? Or are we now starting to bring in old situations and past hurts and wounds? And is it kind of like tangentially related, but not really about what just happened just now? So there's a few worksheets I like to hand out, which I'm not a huge fan of worksheets, but they really help when you're trying to just solidify these skills, when you're just in that learning phase. Dialectical behavior therapy has a lot of great communication skills, a lot of acronyms like Dear Man that will literally walk you through step by step how to even negotiate something with someone or how to communicate your needs. And so I'll give that to people. And then a lot of times my homework is to say, okay, when something comes up, instead of arguing because you tend to feed off of each other's energy, write the things down and then slow down the process So your prefrontal cortex can catch up to your amygdala and you're not just reacting off of emotion because that emotion part of your brain takes over everything. Yeah, You just can't think straight and rationalize. I see this dynamic a lot where one partner really wants to hash it out and the other partner's like, I need space. Can you not? And I do like to encourage folks. I got this from one of my former supervisors, Michelle Levin. She always says like, strike while the iron is cold. And I love that. It's so easy to remember because, yeah, why would I, when things are so hot and intense and passionate and angry and just bubbling over, why would I continue to try to engage with someone I love, someone I want it to work out with? I need to let things settle. And it doesn't mean that you never circle back to it. Make that commitment to each other that like, okay, tomorrow, okay, after work. Okay, after dinner, whatever the timeline is, when the kids go to bed, we'll rehash this or we'll unpack this together. But you do need to allow each other to calm down. That's really healthy. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have a lot of cultural and sometimes religious things that get in the way of us being able to just give each other space. Yeah. I think we're just a fast-paced society. We think everything has to be done right now, especially millennials. We just need to do it right now and then move on to the next thing. I agree with you. I really love that strike while the iron is cold. I think I'm going to remember that even for my own relationship. Yeah. Ever since she said that years ago, I really use that. I really do. Even in traffic. (laughs) Even with your family. Right. For some reason, I'm like very good at doing that with my mom. If she's like, if we're, I'm like, okay, mom, I'll call you back. Right. We'll talk later. I'll call you later. I'm miles away from my family. I think it's easier to do on the phone. But when you're in front of someone and they're making you like furious, how do you get the will to walk away, Eb? You just have to, like you said, strike while the iron's cold. It's like you said, you don't want to be engaging in a conversation with someone you love when you're so emotional. It's just not kosher. It's not going to end up in anything being good. That's part of the work. That's part of what the therapist is there for, to help you find your reason, to help you create that buy-in for yourself that's going to help you walk away. So I just worked on this with one of my clients recently where we talked about her own self-worth. How are you feeling every time you get into these screaming matches with your partner? How does that make you feel? It's draining. Yeah, exactly. 
And then you're tired the next day. <laughs> yeah. And then you She's can't like, sleep. you know what? Yeah. I don't like that. And then I get mad and then I'm pissed. Yeah, exactly. So don't do that, sis. Just go ahead and call it a night. You deserve better, sis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> go to sleep, put your bonnet on, do mm-hmm. your facial routine, you know, do your thing. Whatever you got to do. <laughs> Make your little smoothie in the morning and go. It'll be there when you get back. And I also wanted to talk to you about that, like the fear of leaving, the fear of someone leaving and the trauma of that, you know, because I think that's something that me and you have talked about a lot. Fear of abandonment. The abandonment fear. Mm -hmm. And that is usually something that stems from childhood or from previous relationships. Do you usually find in one of your couples that one person wants the relationship more than the other or is it usually equal? And how do you get everybody on like the same page? I know that might be different for each couple. It is. And sometimes it oscillates. And that's what's interesting. (laughs) And that's relationships. Right. One week I can meet with partners and then they're like, oh, the one person seems really invested. And then the other person is not giving no energy. And then another week I can meet and the person that was just given their all is tapped out and is like, yeah, I got one foot out the door and I'm tired of arguing. I don't even know why we're here. Yeah. And it's like, shit. Wow. <laughs> what happened in one week? Exactly. And that's literally my question for them, just to help them trace back T minus zero. Mm-hmm. What were the antecedent events before you got to this level of disconnect? Right. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about betrayal because I think that's an mm. important part of couples therapy. And sometimes that's what brings people into therapy. Oh, yeah. And that can be like financial betrayal. It could be infidelity. I wanted to kind of get your perspective on dealing with that because usually you're bringing someone in because they hurt you. So there's already like a guilty party. How do you unpack that, Ebony? I think it's so much easier to just throw the first stone and cast the first judgment and be like, well, you did cheat. So you did have sex with your secretary. So that's why we're all here today. But then there's, (laughs) (laughs) this is why I wouldn't be a good therapist. But then also I wanted to kind of get back to like, well, there was reasons why that person probably did that. Yeah. Whether that be having nothing to do with the partner or the dynamic between the couple. Mm -hmm. I just think your job is so interesting. So kind of talk me through that process of betrayal and how you get to both sides of the story. I really think in those aspects, psychoeducation is key because a lot of times the person who feels betrayed really has no understanding of how it happened. And that creates more anxiety for them and hypervigilance about it happening again. And so they do need a better understanding of how this came to be. And without blaming them, because nobody causes someone to betray their trust, but just understanding cause and effect understanding that it is a dance. It takes two people to disconnect. And so, no, you didn't cause that person to deceive you and betray you. But what was going on? What was the atmosphere like before that person made that decision? And how do we both contribute to that? And I think it actually offers people a sense of control of like, okay, so I can be part of the solution. I can be part of not necessarily preventing it because some people are just not monogamous, (laughs) you know, and that's fair. And sometimes it's about understanding that. I've had couples that as we unpack infidelity, especially sexual infidelity, then one partner comes out and realizes that they're polyamorous. And so then we have to just navigate that. Like, is that within your boundary? Can you stay with someone who's poly? And are you poly? Are you down with that? So that's a whole different thing. But like ultimately what I do 
is a lot of just educating them about why this happens sometimes. What are some common themes around infidelity? So kind of like you highlighted, there's financial infidelity, sexual infidelity, emotional infidelity. I mean, the list goes on. And then like reasons behind that. Some people cheat in order to create an exit plan. Some people really don't have the confidence to just say like, oh, actually I'm done. That feels like very aggressive and they'd rather do something kind of passive aggressive like cheating. So that way you break up with them. Whereas other people, it's more of like a familiarity thing. They'll fall back to an ex who maybe is not somebody that they really want to be with. Maybe you really are their chosen person, but it's like that whole discomfort of maybe you pushing them toward a different space or you're challenging them in a way. I could see that being a thing too. The devil you know is better than the angel you don't know. It's that whole sentiment. So there's a lot of reasons there. I mean, I'm not even scratching the surface on that. I just like to help people understand all that and then have them have a really thought-provoking conversation about, so what was it for you? And is it a multitude of some of those reasons? And how do we want to navigate this relationship as we move forward? Helping that person who felt betrayed understand what their why is. Okay, so yeah, they did this to you. That was really shitty, validating their emotion. And yet you stayed. So what is in it for you? Because it's not nothing. And if it truly is nothing, then what's happening with your agency and your sense of self that you're continuing to should yourself? That's kind of deep. And that's where sometimes we will go into some individual work if I feel like someone's not in touch with their own agency. Right. And then what are kind of some of the boundaries that you do set with your couples? Like what are treatment goals? I honestly feel like people, (laughs) this is like so terrible. You have made my (laughs) expectations of therapy so above and beyond because that's how I feel about you as a clinician, as a friend. (laughs) But even as a clinician, that's how I feel. I feel like my goals and dreams for therapy and what my patients are actually doing in therapy is probably far different than what I have visualized for them. But I always ask them, you know, I have a patient, I referred them for therapy with a therapist, no matter what their title is, no matter what their letters. And they come back to me maybe a month or two later and I said, okay, how's therapy? And they're like, oh, it's good. It's going okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are your treatment goals? And they just look at me like, well, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know your treatment goals? You've been in therapy for three to four months. I don't understand. I want you to talk about treatment goals. This is so important because I feel like patients should know when they come to a medical professional, we tell them, this is the diagnosis. These are the end goals. This is what we're hoping for. These are some things that could happen. Hopefully, we're looping you into the conversation. We should be looping you into the conversation and giving you your options and navigating and being that transcriber with you and helping you set those goals. Can you talk about treatment goals? Because I feel like a lot of people don't know what they are and why they're important for therapy. So treatment goals come from a treatment plan. And ideally, they're measurable objectives of what your desired outcomes are for psychotherapy. So treatment goals can look like anything. It's really just about what you want. As the individual, right? Or as a couple or as a family or whatever it is, whatever the modality. But I personally, as a clinician, like to use treatment goals to hold me accountable. And that's usually how I introduce it to my clients because it does take up a good amount of a session just to flesh them out. But I say like, you know, I want to make sure that we have something we can refer back to when we check in six months from now or 15 sessions from now or whatever we create as our benchmark that ensures that we're sticking to a plan, that we're doing the things that we said in the very beginning that we're going to do. 
I take it very seriously that people are literally paying me for a service. Most of my clients are self-pay and access to quality mental health care is really rare. It's rare and hard in this country. So I feel like there's a responsibility on me to really show up and do what I say I'm going to do. So a lot of those measurable objectives, let's say you come in to reduce your symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. Okay, one of those treatment goals looks like client struggles with anxiety symptoms. Clinician will introduce new coping skills every week. Clinician will assign homework to allow the client to practice coping skills in between sessions. Clinician will provide psychoeducation about the function of anxiety. Like there's actual action steps. There's tangible things that we should be doing in therapy. I hate when I hear, I guess there's a place, Ebony, you can tell me, this is your specialty. There's a place for just talk therapy. I think talk therapy is great, you know, talking about what happened to your day and and why some things happened and and why you maybe reacted that way. And I think that's great. That still could be on the treatment plan though. But I feel like when I have a patient with anxiety who has not learned any skills to dealing with their anxiety and they're just in therapy talking about what happened to them during the day. And then I ask them about anxiety and they still don't know anything about the thing that I sent them to therapy for. I just think that you're doing your client a disservice when you do things like that. And then it falls back on me to educate the patient on the function of anxiety and what anxiety is, which of course I don't mind, but that's the reason I sent you somewhere to get treatment, you know? The medical providers don't have the time. That's not really fair. That's a misuse of resources in our health system. Let's be real. And so I just want people to know that when you're in therapy, your therapist should be maybe a couple sessions. I don't know how you do it, Ebony. They should be going through some treatment goals with you and it should be something that you come up with together. It's just helpful. It's helpful to understand what you're actually there for, for anything. I mean, we have rules in the classroom. They're teachers when they do their learning plans, their educational plans. So if they're doing it, I think we should all be doing it, setting goals. You talked a little bit ago about some flags. I heard you say the word flags. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to get into a little bit more of a fun topic, Mm -hmm. which is white flags, pink flags, and red flags for Valentine's Day. We just had Valentine's Day pass. So I wanted to talk to you. And obviously, this is all very individual, right? And so I'm going to throw out just some things that could happen. And I want you to tell me if you think it's a pink flag, a white flag. This is for you, Ebony. So this could be different. Me personally. Okay. This could be different for everybody listening. But this is Ebony's. Ebony the lover. (laughs) Not the therapist. (laughs) Ebony, the person she is dating. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So you're seeing a person, your partner, and you see a text message come up and it's flirtatious. Is that a red flag? Is that a pink flag? Or is that a white flag? I'll give you the context of the text. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, the give text me is like, so great to see you. Wink face emoji. Hope we can see each other soon. Missed you so much. Heart. Oh, that's a red flag. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> that's a red flag. But it also depends on how your partner responds. Like for me, if it's like, huh? Like if he's rude like Kanye West, then I like that. let them know because what (laughs) but if it's like you're ignoring it or you're just responding like yeah cool or like you're not doing anything to really diffuse it and create that hard boundary that like no I'm fully with somebody then that's a red flag huh why does she (laughs) feel so comfortable to send that to you miss you I don't say that to my friends not even my best friend Nia so huh miss you (laughs) so much Winky face emoji. 
The winky face is always sus. It's always sus. Whenever I see it, I'm like, what is going on? All the emojis in the world. What are you winking about? (laughs) Yeah. All the emojis in the world. What are you sending that? (laughs) What does that mean? All right. Let's do another one. Your partner does not respond to your text messages for hours at a time. I'm going to say a white flag because okay. I date high value men. Yeah. yeah. I'm, this person. I'm the one doing it. I'm in session. So don't text me. Better like, don't text me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a real job. I don't know what you do. Uh, I work for a living. <laughs> I work. I really work. <laughs> I'm with a patient. Yeah. I'm with a patient. Don't bother me. Sometimes when I'm not working, I'm resting. So I want to afford you that same grace. Oh, and perfect. I'm not going to bug out. Yeah. Yeah. Just because <laughs> you don't respond to my texts for hours. You at need a time. to be busy. That's going to work for us in the long run. Okay. Ready? Here's another one. This is fine. We should do this more often. I like this. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you thought this was going to be different than how we were doing it. So your partner has not introduced you. It's been six months and they have not introduced you to any of their family. They've introduced you to their friends, maybe their friends, but not their family. It's been six months. <sighs> six months. Hmm. I don't know what my judgment is about six months. It depends. If it's a long distance six months, that's not really six months. Mm-hmm. And friends are like your chosen family. So for some people, that's a little bit more intimate. And like, what's their family like? Maybe they don't really like their family and that's why they're kind of scared. I don't know. That might be a pink flag. That might be like, let's have a conversation about it. Would you want to have a conversation about it? Like, depending on the circumstances? I might want to have a conversation, but I feel like six months, I tend to move slow. I'm not pressed to really meet your family because I also just want to see where this is going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And six months is not like, I'm not itching at six months to be like, what are we? I'm just like, yeah, it's been six months. So, yeah. (laughs) Are you trying to meet my family? Okay, perfect. Here's another one, all right? Your partner throws something or breaks something when you get into a really heated argument. It doesn't happen all the time. Never personally put their hands on you. But mm-hmm. throws, you get into a heated argument, they throw or they break something in the house. What is that for you? At me? No, not at you. Oh. This is personal. So obviously, you know, in a context, I know. it's kind of a dicey one. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like that. Yeah, because I do destruction therapy <laughs> with my clients. <laughs> and so on one level, I'm like, if you're coping in a healthy way, but I'm also like, I don't need to be part of that. That's kind of activating. So if we're like arguing and you're like, damn it, and you like break something, I feel like that's going to activate me. So that's kind of a red flag that you're like, you can't control your emotions to that point. Yeah, I think from an emotional regulation standpoint, that's a red flag because how old are we? Okay. What about you have been in a relationship for five to six years, we'll say, and there has been no conversation about marriage or long-term commitment. What do you think that is? Red flag. I'm not Ashanti. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) First of all, (laughs) two years. I'm like, huh? (laughs) What? (laughs) What are we? What are you doing? Don't waste my time. Okay. Here's another one. This one's more fun, right? Your significant other buys you a fake piece of jewelry. Like you went to a jewelry. (laughs) 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 Didn't even let me get the sentence out. She's like, red flag, red flag, run. They don't value you. Because you're a liar. And you don't value me. And you're a liar. Whoa. Whoa. Red flags all over the field. (laughs) Don't get me anything. Just give me the money you would have spent on the fake jewelry. (laughs) 
Okay. Your partner does not know how to keep a job. They keep a job and then they're maybe more whimsical in life and then they move through different jobs, but they don't have like a career path. Is that a red flag for you? Is that a pink flag or is that a white flag? I guess it would depend. It depends on their income. <laughs> Me and I like to be financially secure in relationships. Yeah, we do. I have financial trauma. <laughs> I'm not going to be poor. <laughs> I didn't fought all my life. <laughs> Did not work this hard to be struggling. I, I used bad to have by myself. my swipes in college denied for food. <laughs> so. Right. So that's not cute. I'm not putting groceries back. (laughs) So there's a lot of people that don't work Mm. and yet they're okay. They're able to make their money grow for them or they invest in things or they have freelance work that they do. I can hold space for that. But if you're just really not doing anything and then you're also kind of like bleeding out money, like you got that kind of leaky bucket thing going on. No, that doesn't feel secure for me. Doesn't feel like I could build a future. No. And I personally am partnering to build a family. So that's what creates that for me. Like I wouldn't feel secure in that at all. If I were partnering just to like have fun and travel, then maybe that wouldn't matter as much because the minute that you can't participate, then I would just maybe find another partner. But I need that stability in order to have a family. Your partner does not like to travel. Yeah, no. (laughs) Red flag. (laughs) I'm going places. I'm not sitting at home. I was an only child. (laughs) I was very bored. (laughs) What if there's like a phobia of flights or something? Definitely not. Because I'm getting on the plane and where are you going? (laughs) Which is not nice because I have a phobia of ships. So I guess someone could say that about me. I don't like cruise ships. I saw the Titanic one time. It was enough. Y'all tricked Black people enough with ships. And I was done with it after that. I was like, I'm done. I'm tapped out. So, Eb, it was so amazing to have you. We'll definitely have to have you back. Such a good time. We didn't really have you. You were just here. Yeah. For your own show. So Mm -hmm. really awesome to (laughs) talk to you, Eb. And thank you all, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Cure the Culture. We hope you learned something. And just remember to always be safe, be well, and be informed. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.